Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Hope. It is Rally Weekend at Hope, and historically, the first weekend after Labor Day is when a lot of classes and ministries and programs begin. It's kind of the new year for the church, so it's an exciting time to be the church, and even in a weird season where we are doing things differently than normal, we're really excited about what God is up to this season. There's a new member class uh, there's Alpha, both of those are happening online. There's youth and family ministry, and, and a lot of our youth and family ministry beginning this Wednesday with Power Life, our confirmation ministry for middle school students, Ignition, our high school ministry. It's actually going to be happening on site, outside, in person. We're excited about that. There's also a hybrid model if online is the better option for you. But here in Ankeny, our big push for the fall is something called Unshakable Hope unshakable hope. Every once in a while in the rhythm of our church community, it makes sense for all of us to focus in on the same thing together, and it just feels like this is the right time for us to be doing that. I mean, I don't know about you, I probably feel as scattered and separated from community as I have ever felt. I am not a hugger, but when I see somebody from Hope at a grocery store or at the gas station it takes a lot to remind myself we got to keep socially distancing because there's a big part of me that wants to rush over and hug you and say, it's so good to see you. Because the truth is we are hardwired for connection. We're hardwired for connection with one another and with our God. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is praying for the church. And remember the church, the Greek word literally means the gathered community. They know they need to come together. They, they know they need connection with one another, and they know they need connection with God. And so part of what Paul prays, this is Ephesians 3, verse 18. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. I want to read that one more time. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. God's love for us, is, it's enormous. It's, it's so big. And I wonder how many of us really understand God's love at all. I mean, if you had to give yourself a score from 0 to 10, we'll, we'll say there's a scale from 0 to 10. 0 means I don't really understand God's love at all. And 10 means I have a pretty good understanding of God's love. I wonder where you would place yourself. And as you're thinking where you might place yourself, let me just make sure you understand one of the hopes that I have for our congregation is every time we gather together for worship, or even if you're listening to this on the podcast, I, I'm hoping that there's people listening, there's people gathered for worship, representing every number on that scale. I hope there are people here who are maybe checking out church for the first time and would absolutely, truthfully, honestly say, I don't understand anything about God's love. And I hope there are people who've been a part of what God's been doing here at Hope long enough that they might say, I don't know, maybe it's like a seven, a seven and a half, maybe even an eight. Whether you would rate yourself closer to zero or closer to 10, I think there's at least one thing we all have in common. None of us have it all figured out. We never arrive. There is always a next step of growth and maturity for every single one of us, no matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been following Jesus. 
And I think it's important to remind ourselves of this truth on a pretty regular basis. So wherever you are right now, find someone close to you and just tell them, you got some growing up to do, baby. You got some growing up to do, baby. If you're listening to this on the podcast through earbuds and nobody else around you is hearing anything else, I think that would especially be funny if you just went up to some random person and said, you've got some growing up to do, baby. Ah, Paul, Paul is praying for the church to understand how big and expansive the love of God is. And his prayer continues in the next verse, verse 19. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to understand fully. May you experience, not just knowing it in your head, but experiencing it in the way you live your life. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. So the truth is, the scale's not from zero to 10. The scale is from zero to eternity. Uh, the Greek understanding of eternity or eternal life, most of us, we, we think of it as sort of this linear line that uh, begins at the beginning of time and, and then this line that just keeps moving forward through time. That's, that's a small fraction of what eternity really means from the kind of biblical perspective. The biblical understanding of eternity is boundaryless, no boundaries. So when Paul's talking about high and wide and deep and long, he's describing a boundaryless love. God's love is eternal. It is too great for us to understand fully. But the prayer is, I can understand it and I can experience it a little more today than I did yesterday. And when I get into a rhythm of gaining just a little more understanding and experiencing just a little more of God's love in my life on a day-to-day basis, then slowly over time, that can lead to a changed life. I'm guessing another thing we all have in common is we all have things in our life we wish could change. Relationships we wish were different, that were closer and more connected. Unhealthy habits we wish we could overcome. Negative and ultimately destructive thought patterns we wish we could somehow rewire our brains to tell ourselves a a different story. One of the reasons I'm a pastor is because I believe God's love is the only power that can change and transform a human heart. And what this world desperately needs right now is for God's love to change our hearts. My heart, your heart, the hearts of our, our leaders, the hearts of this world. Our Bible reading today is from 1 John chapter 4. It's all about love. John tells us God is love, that God demonstrates his love for us by sending Jesus, and in response to God's love, we are to continue to love one another. Or as John puts it in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 4, John writes, we love each other because God loved us first. We love because God first loved us. Part of what that means, there's this very direct correlation between my understanding of God's love for me and my ability to love others. The less I understand or believe or trust in God's love for me, the less I'm actually able to love others in a healthy way. And the more I understand and experience and trust in God's love for me, the more I'm able to love others in a healthy way. What, what gets in the way of our growing understanding or, or trust in God's love? 
Sometimes it's the primary picture that we have of God. I wonder what your primary picture of God is. What's the lens through which you understand God? What image pops into your mind when you think about God? For a lot of people, when they think about God, they think of God in terms of divine retribution. Divine retribution. It's understandable why people might think this. I mean, if you pick up a Bible, just, ah, maybe I should check out this God thing, this Bible thing, and you picked up a Bible and you started reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what would you start to understand about God? Well, you would learn that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, including people, and God placed those people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. There was only one rule, and they break that rule. They eat the forbidden fruit. And how does God respond? God banishes Adam and Eve, kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, and the Bible says God places an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back into the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve wouldn't eat the tree of life and be able to live forever. This is divine retribution, we think. If you decide for some reason, I want to keep on reading, Uh, if you keep reading through Genesis 4, Genesis 5, by the time you get to Genesis 6, you read this, starting in verse 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And the Lord saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Divine retribution. So maybe by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, you're thinking, how about we just skip this book of Genesis? Is there some other book that I could read? Oh yeah, I know a lot of people who say they have favorite Bible verses. I sometimes hear people say, Jeremiah 29, 11, it's my favorite Bible verse. This is a verse where God promises to give us a future and a hope. And so maybe you decide, I'm going to start reading the book of, of Jeremiah. Did you know that God talks about punishing people for their sins 45 times in the book of Jeremiah. Here's just one example, Jeremiah 21, verse 14. I myself will punish you for your sinfulness, says the Lord. I will light a fire in your forest that will burn up everything around you. Divine retribution. And do you think it's possible someone might read that verse today, September 12th, uh, 2020, and then watch the news about forest fires in uh, California and Oregon, and someone might put those two together and come to the conclusion, oh, God must be, must be punishing those people on the West Coast for all their sinfulness. Now, of course, that would be a gross misinterpretation of Scripture, but this gross misinterpretation of Scripture happens all the time. And do you think it's possible someone might be reading all these examples of a punishing God in the Old Testament, a God who seems to constantly be on the verge of blowing his top in anger, a God who seems to be about seeking vengeance on people who disappoint him. Do you think it's possible somebody might say the God of the Old Testament is, cannot possibly be the same as the God of the New Testament? God of the Old Testament cannot possibly be the same God that John is talking about and John describes in 1 John chapter 4 simply by saying God is love. How are, we, how are we supposed to make sense of all this? Now, of course, a whole bunch of people have written all kinds of books on this topic, but here's the way I'd like to approach it for our purposes today. 
God doesn't change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as I engage faithfully with Scripture, I am changed. As I remember that the Word of God is living and active, and as I, as I ask God to open the eyes of my heart, as I seek to gain a heart of wisdom, as I join Paul in praying that my understanding and my experience of God's love would grow, through that process, I am changed. One of the things that you start to see the more you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you, you really start to see, it's, it's really pretty clear, the Bible's not a story of divine retribution. The Bible is a story of divine restoration. Divine restoration. So if you go back and you look at the book of Genesis through this lens of restoration, what do you discover? God creates the heavens and the earth and God says it is good, including human beings. Human beings are good. They're created in the image of God. And part of what that means, every human being is equal before God. Every human being deserves to be treated with dignity and fairness. So by the time we get to Genesis 6, where God looks around and says, these people, man, everything they think or imagine is consistently and totally evil, what God is seeing is people who are not treating one another as image bearers. People are not viewing one another and treating one another with dignity and fairness because one another's are made up of people created in the image of God. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Remember what tree it's from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And part of what sin does is sin causes us to redefine good and evil. Not the way God defines it, but we redefine it according to what's in my own sort of personal individual advantage. And often, good and evil gets redefined according to, you know, something that happens at the expense of someone else. Now, one of the ways this gets talked about in the Bible is God wants justice. But people are often acting in ways that bring about injustice. It happens in individuals where we see Cain killing his brother Abel. It happens in families. Joseph is his father's favorite, so his brothers sell him into slavery. It happens in nations. The Egyptians make the Israelites, an entire group of people, their slaves. What injustice always does is it breaks relationships. It damages connection in community. Maybe the community is a friendship. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a society. So part of what we have to understand is the Bible has rules around injustice. And again, you can read the Bible and think the rules around injustice are all about divine retribution. You steal something, you have to pay it back. You hurt someone, you have to pay the price for what you've done. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc. But what the Bible actually shows is divine restoration. Divine restoration is how God deals with injustice. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abram and God says, through Abram and, and through his family, all of the families on earth will be blessed. How? Well, God is going to use Abram and his family, the people of Israel, God's going to use them to restore 
this idea of justice, of seeing the image of God in one another and treating everyone with dignity and fairness. Another name for that would be treating them with love, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, what happens, and the Bible records this, time and again, the people of God forget. Time and again, God reminds them, this is what I want. This is God's vision for God's people. So we read this verse about forest fires in Jeremiah 21. If you keep reading, Jeremiah 22 verse 3 says this. This is what the Lord says. Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. That's Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Here's Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. One final example, Psalm 146, verses 7 and 8. The Lord gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. This is what God does, but it's also how God wants us to live as God's people. I mean, the primary story of the Old Testament is the story of God rescuing the people of Israel from the injustice of Egypt. Now, the great irony of the Old Testament is the people of Israel start doing the same acts of injustice that had been inflicted upon them, they do it to the people around them. So yes, there's punishment. I told you in Jeremiah, the idea of punishment gets mentioned 45 times, but, but, the punishment is not exactly what you might think it is. Again, I, I referenced Jeremiah 29, 11, just a great verse. But it keeps getting better if you keep on reading. Here's verses 13 and 14 of Jeremiah 29. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. Restore your fortunes. God is telling the people, I want to restore you. And this restoration, it's not about finances or wealth or assets. It's about something far more valuable. Our identity as children of God as men and women created in the image of God. What God is basically saying, anytime God's people mess up, God's response, this divine retribution, this response is, you know what I'm going to do now after you messed up? I'm going to love you now more than ever. I'm going to love you into wholeness. God's going to pour upon you a gratuitous, unbelievable, unaccountable, irrefutable, irresistible love. And this love is personified in Jesus. You start looking at what Jesus is doing in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is restoring people through his love. He heals them. Sometimes the word restore gets used in a healing story. Like in Matthew 12, Jesus heals a man with leprosy and Matthew writes, his hand was restored just like the other one. 
Jesus is returning things to the way they were created to be. Same is true for the Samaritan woman at the well. Or the woman who sneaks through a crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment so she could be healed. Or think about Zacchaeus climbing up a tree to get a good look at Jesus. But also Zacchaeus is climbing up that tree because he knows he's not welcome in community. And what does Jesus do? He restores him. Brings him back into community so that Zacchaeus can love the people in his community and the people in his community can love him. When Jesus heals that woman who reaches through the crowd to touch him, he stops. He makes sure that everybody sees she's the one who has done this. She's the one who has been healed so that she can be restored because of the love of Jesus into community again. Part of the way we see Jesus at work, Jesus meets people and transforms people at these moments in their lives when they hate themselves the most when they feel the most shame or guilt, when in some ways they, they want to punish themselves. They think they are deserving of punishment. And there's that word punish again. The idea of punishment can really be a roadblock to love. You go back to 1 John chapter 4. God is love. We love because God first loved us. But punishment shows up in this passage as well. This is verse 18. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows we have not fully experienced God's perfect love. Perfect love drives out fear, casts out fear, removes fear. So if, if we're still afraid, if our sort of primary understanding of who God is and how God is at work in our life, if it leaves us frightened because now we're going to get divine retribution, this shows we have not fully experienced God's perfect love. Now, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us, we have to go through this pretty dramatic shift in our understanding of who God is. I, I remember going to bed at night as a little kid, and if my favorite sports team had lost a game, I would remember having the, these, these prayers, you know, whether it was the Cubs or the Chiefs or the Iowa Hawkeyes, and they were losing a lot, these teams of mine, and so I would have this prayer a lot, Lord, what sin am I being punished for that my favorite team is losing? And my Hawkeyes aren't even playing the season this, this fall, so holy cow, what is the sin that God is punishing me for so that the Hawks can't even play a game? And maybe you do this in other sorts of ways. It's really interesting. We have this outdoor worship service we've been doing uh, since June. Uh, and for the three or four months before that, it was all online all the time. And I keep hearing from people uh, in, in our church here at Hope Ankeny saying, oh, I really miss worship. I really miss worship. And, and I say, you know, we have an outdoor service. And they're like, oh, I know, I, I haven't been. <laughs> and, and I think some people... Like when they tell me that they're feeling a huge amount of guilt because they haven't made it to one of the outdoor services. And I don't think the guilt comes from me. I, th I think it comes from somewhere else, this idea that there must be, like God's going to be disappointed in me. God's gonna, things are going to go bad in my life because somehow I haven't made it to an outdoor worship service. Well, let me just ask you, are, are things going badly in your life or are they going kind of Okay. I mean, we always have things that could be going better, but I don't, my guess is if you look back over the last six months, you're not going to see this idea of God punishing you for not showing up for worship enough. Maybe it's time for you to change your understanding of who God is. 
And instead of saying, I got to get to church so that I don't get punished by an angry God, what if you could actually trust God's love for you? That God loves you so much, God wants to continue pouring that love into you, filling you with that love so that that love of God can overflow out of you into the relationships around you. And the reason we come to worship is not so that we avoid punishment. The reason we come to worship is so that we can experience just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more God's love for us. I think this is one of the things Jesus is trying to do. Remove our fear of punishment, our fear of divine retribution. And instead, Jesus is trying to help us trust and believe in divine restoration. I mean, you could say God punishes us by loving us more. How else could divine love be supreme and victorious? And it is victorious. In Matthew chapter 12, the same chapter where he restores the hand of a man with leprosy, Jesus quotes Isaiah 42. Starting in verse 18 of of Matthew 12, Jesus says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. This is what the Messiah is going to do. Proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of the world. He will cause justice to be victorious. When justice is victorious, we're not talking about divine retribution. We're not talking about revenge and payback and punishment. When justice is victorious, we're talking about divine restoration. Now, this is the time in the message where, more often than not, I would want to show a movie clip to drive the point home. And if I was going to be showing movie clips in this message, uh, they would come from a movie called Just Mercy. I'd really encourage you uh, to watch that movie, Just Mercy. Now, thankfully, the movie is based on a book by Brian Stevenson. And so I just want to read a little bit from his book, Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer. He's a social justice activist. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. His book, Just Mercy, A Story of Redemption and Justice, He's talking about this idea that distance, the the more disconnected we are, whether it's physical or social or spiritual distance, that's what allows injustice to flourish. Proximity or closeness to one's neighbor, and remember we're all neighbors according to Jesus, this is what turns our hearts towards love and towards divine restoration. So this is Brian Stevenson talking about his first interaction with an inmate named Henry on death row. Two men exactly the same age, one studying Harvard, uh, studying the law at Harvard, the other one condemned to die. Here's what Brian Stevenson writes. Henry asked me questions about myself and I asked him about his life. Within an hour we were both lost in conversation. 
I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row, yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. In that moment, Henry altered something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopefulness. Proximity to the condemned and incarcerated made the question of each person's humanity more urgent and meaningful, including my own. I've also represented people who have committed terrible crimes but nonetheless struggle to recover and to find redemption. I've discovered deep in the hearts of many condemned and incarcerated people the scattered traces of hope and humanity, seeds of restoration that come to astonishing life when nurtured by very simple interventions. Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Let me read that one again. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I don't know about you, but that feels like really good news to me. And it should cause us to view the world around us through a very different lens. What what if we could actually believe this is true about everyone? Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Brian Stevenson continues, My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps... We all need some measure of unmerited grace. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we get started in this fall, as we are in a message series where we're talking about a pathway to a new normal, I pray that you would continue to be at work in us, helping us to know and understand and experience your love for us in transformative ways. Lord, this world needs your help so that fear and anger and um, vindictiveness, that this doesn't rule, this doesn't reign, and instead, Lord, your mercy and your compassion and your justice from your people at work viewing one another as people created in the image of God, Lord, we need you to be at work bringing about the change, the transformation that we all are longing for. At some moments, it feels kind of hopeless. So Lord, remind us, we're part of a church called Lutheran Church of Hope. And our hope has a name. His name is Jesus. 
We thank you for his life and for his ministry. And we thank you, Lord, for the way he is at work restoring us to the people you created us to be. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.